Science is real from the Big Bang to DNA. Science is real from evolution to Welcome to the Science of the Local podcast. You're with me, Hamish Clark, and I'm joined today by Dr. Sally Nathan, who's a senior lecturer at UNSW Medicine, working in the area of public health with a particular focus on improving engagement of underrepresented and excluded communities. Sally's won multiple awards for her teaching, supervision and research. So thanks very much for joining us, Sally. How are you? Good. Thanks so much, Hamish, for having me. You're very welcome. Um, I was wondering if we could kick off by maybe you telling us a little bit more about your work in your own words. Yeah, look, I guess what's really interesting about me in a way is that I didn't start out in academia. Um, There's a lot of academics that come up through the system. My my background is actually in the non-government sector and I work mm-hmm. for Voice Magazine, Consumers Association of Australia. Mm-hmm. So I really started out my career very much focused on consumers, patient rights, partnerships, giving voice to those who can't always advocate for themselves because of, you know, the structural inequalities in society that silence them. So That's terrific. Came, yeah, so I already kind of came into academia with this real view of, you know, People in research are not subjects to be researched on. We should be active as much as possible in the research process if we're to learn about their worldview. So that's something that I really brought with me into the academic world and into my teaching as well. Mm. And have you found uh, academia to be receptive to views like that or is there a struggle sometimes to convince your colleagues of that? Yeah, look, it, is, it is a struggle and the research funding environment doesn't always provide the right framework to do that kind of research. If you're wanting to do research where you want to co-design or co-create or involve the community or consumers or or participants in the research process, you have to be a bit more open about what you're going to do. So you can't necessarily say, well, we're going to use this method or we're going to focus on this issue. If you're truly being participatory, you should mm-hmm. be much more open-ended about both what and how. But that mm-hmm. doesn't sit very well with funding agencies um, and particularly yeah. in health and medicine where they want a randomised control trial or a... Yeah, okay. And that really removes that ability of com- communities and consumers to have a say. Mm. Yeah, well, I hope those agencies can change um, slowly maybe over time. A bit of movement, so the sort of latest buzz in kind of medicine, everyone's talking co-design, which is really community engagement, community participation rebadged. Don't care what they call it, as long as they start to value the input of communities and and people in research, because, you know, we should be researching things that obviously are important gaps in knowledge, but also things that matter to communities Mm -hmm. and to people on the ground. Mm. Amen. So can you give us an example then, Sally, of uh, something that you've been involved in that did have this kind of co-design or participatory aspect? Yeah, look, it's, it's always a challenge because clearly these people that you're wanting to engage have got lives and their mm-hmm. priority isn't necessarily your research. Mm-hmm. So one piece of work I've been doing over the last, you know, five or so years is working with young people with alcohol and other drug issues, um, mm-hmm. particularly those referred into residential treatment. So they've got very mm-hmm. complex lives. They're 13 to 18 years. They don't just have AOD use. They might have unstable housing. They've mm-hmm. been, you know, police contact. A number of them have been in contact with um, the justice system. They've mm-hmm. got mental health, so- social and family issues going on. So 
engaging them is, is challenging, but we involved mm. two young people on an advisory committee um, for this project, which was very much strongly an Aboriginal advisory committee. So we mm -hmm. had Aboriginal organisations that could okay. advocate for community and individuals who'd been through treatment, both Aboriginal and those who didn't identify. Mm -hmm. So we involved them in a sort of process of, of helping us to think about how do we collect the data? What do we do with it? What, what kinds of questions matter to ask of the data? And it was very hard to follow up young people after treatment. Um, mm. They've got unstable housing. How do you find them? Yeah. So we started to use some more participatory methods that are also much more enjoyable for young people. Mm -hmm. so young people are always asked, you know, by the police, by facts, by family and community services, mm -hmm. to tell their story. Yeah, okay. So many times it becomes this kind of narrative that they just blurt out. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. when we were doing the research um, with young people, you know, both in treatment and, and after treatment about what was happening for them and their life pathways, we noticed they talked from a very kind of deficit narrative. Mm -hmm. so, and as researchers, you know, we often do that as well. We go, well, what's the problem? You know, drug and alcohol use, unstable housing, you know, all of those kind of deficits of their lives. Yet yep. the reality is... Um, they've actually got a lot of strengths and the young people we worked with in the advisory group and in the research kept saying, you know, we keep painting this negative picture. Um, and so it's not to diminish that, but it's to say, well, what strengths do you have in your life? Mm -hmm. And just interviewing them in a traditional qualitative research project kind of didn't tap into that narrative. So mm -hmm. we actually trialled body mapping, which is an arts-based research method. Mm. Yeah, tell me about that. We tried it with uh, five females and five young males who were in treatment. Mm. We worked with an artist, um, Michelle mm. Jersky, who's fabulous at Sydney Children's Hospital Network. This doesn't sound like it would be popular with research funding agencies. No, very hard. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's been funding for it, but I'm, I'm currently mm. looking at how I can make it sound really, you know, inviting to funders. Gave mm. life-size paper and they traced around the outline of their body in whatever you know, pose they wanted. And mm -hmm. then we worked over an hour with arts-based materials for them to actually create a map of their body. They could do things outside and inside the, the drawing, mm -hmm. using a range of materials about what makes them strong, where they draw support in their life and how they see themselves both now and in the future. So we mm -hmm. really tried to push towards that more strength-based kind of view. And the, we then interviewed them a couple of days later and with mm -hmm. the body map and talked through what they drew and why and what were the things they were focused on in their body map. And it was not only an incredibly rich story that we got about their strengths and their support, it actually mm -hmm. became an intervention as well because wow. they took away from that, oh, wow, there's these things about me that, you know, that are strong and these supports that I have and it brought to the top of their minds those sorts of things. And we took a photograph and printed it out for them mm -hmm. on an A3, you know, laminated piece. And, and they stuck them up in their rooms in the treatment mm -hmm. facility. They took them to their counselling. So these sorts of methods may be a time-consuming, but they've got a lot of value both in accessing a richer story about a young person, but mm -hmm. also they have impacts on the young person themselves. Yeah. Of their sense of control, their sense of identity, so there's a lot of value in these sorts of methods and I'm exploring how I can use them in a more scaled up version. Mm, sounds really um, powerful. Is that something that you had come across through uh, previous research or through your kind of uh, knowledge and experience of, of uh, groups outside of academia? 
Yeah, look, I guess it was mostly, I spent some time with Catherine Boydell, who's a professor at the Black Dog Institute. Mm -hmm. And she's come from Canada. She's been here a number of years now. And she's mm -hmm. very much been an arts-based researcher, particularly mm -hmm. using the arts to translate knowledge, mm -hmm. so presenting, you know, for example, she's done work on young people's experience of psychosis using mm -hmm. theatre to share mm -hmm. their experience to the audience. So oh. she got me interested in this. And then when I trialled body mapping with young people in treatment, I was pretty impressed with what it did. Mm -hmm. How it, as I said, opened up this, this new way of, of, of engaging with young people um, that I could see real potential, particularly in the drug and alcohol area uh, where young people are incredibly... Um, you know, that I don't want to use the word vulnerable, but they're, they're sick of being asked mm. about themselves and sure. it's a way of giving back to them, not just saying, tell me about yourself. It's a way of, mm. well, you know, here's something you can do, which is also a value for you. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it comes back to the points you were making before about a, a power imbalance and how they can often be treated as just an object rather than, you know, a, a real person with, you know, all their complexities. So, yeah, that sounds really interesting. And also, I think one of the things that's really struck me during COVID and lockdown is I've actually gone on TikTok. Um, mm. I'm not doing any TikToks, <laughs> but my adolescent um, daughters, mm -hmm. and um, they set me up a TikTok account because I wanted to see how are young yeah. people communicating with each other. Mm. And even though now a lot of older people have gone on to TikTok and ruined it for the younger people. Um, They'll have to I invent want, something else. Yeah, they keep moving on to new platforms. So... I started looking at, at that and the use of photographs and videos for young people to share their experience. So that's the kind of direction I'm now leaning to as well. How do yeah, we do okay. something using digital technology, using visual mm. and video to mm -hmm. both engage young people in research to find out their life experiences, but also, again, as an intervention. So as, a, as an approach to supporting them, how do we then take that kind of platform and turn it into also an intervention? Mm. Because so, you see stuff on sorry. TikTok that's a psychologist talking to young people going, here's how you manage stress. Yeah, so okay. Interventions well, are already yeah. happening online. I have to check it out myself. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a little bit of a Twitter addict, I'm sorry to say. Oh, I'm on Twitter too, Hamish, but I think Twitter, you know, I mean, there is some humorous things on there. Um, I guess I see that more as my work and mm. for me, mm. TikTok's more... Um, like it's fun, it makes me mm. laugh. I see mm. things that um, expose me to other countries and people and their worldviews and what's happening for them. Mm. Um, so I definitely think um, it's the platform for young people in terms of those memes and videos and things that, that they like to, to do. Mm -hmm. so it's both for my own enjoyment and a laugh, but also to see what, what are young people saying to each other? What are they talking mm. about with Black Lives Matter? What mm. are they saying about, you know, Trump and COVID and all of these things that are impacting on their lives right now. Mm. And that, that goes very much to the heart of your, your work too. So it's not just a kind of um, uh, an interest that you have outside of work. It's relevant to what you do at work yeah. as well. But I've only ever done one TikTok and I didn't post it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, maybe, maybe we can uh, share a link with our listeners if you ever do another one. Yeah. Um, I don't think my children would be happy. <laughs> well, that's something we all struggle with. I've got three three daughters and uh, I, uh, I quite enjoy making them cringe, doing embarrassing things, bad jokes, stuff like that. We'll so. get on to TikTok, Hamish. You can embarrass <laughs> them on a much larger scale. <laughs> yeah, maybe I'll delete my Twitter account and switch to TikTok. Um, 
Can I ask you a little bit about your um, your teaching and supervision? Uh, you've you've won awards for that. Um, I always love talking to people who who are good teachers because you know one of the reasons I do this podcast is I'm interested in in uh, bringing science and society closer together and and understanding how we can engage people. You're talking about art as a way of, of engaging people. Can you tell me a little bit about your experience and maybe your philosophy or how you feel about about teaching and and supervision as well, if you like. Yeah. Absolutely. I guess for me, particularly with teaching and the fact that I've, I've been doing a lot of teaching online, even pre-COVID. So mm -hmm. I took two courses that people said, oh, you can't teach that online. It's just not going to work. So qualitative research methods, mm -hmm. and also community development. So mm -hmm. they're courses that, you know, for me, they're not very co content heavy. They're more you know, learning theoretical ideas and applying them and thinking about them and reflecting on them. Mm -hmm. so the way that I've designed those courses and my philosophy is a bit like my research philosophy, which is students are co-creators. They're, they're part of a learning community. Mm -hmm. I'm not there to fill them with knowledge and to do long, hour-long lectures that they have mm -hmm. to watch. Mm -hmm. My view is that my knowledge is a trigger for them to then think more, work together in kind of small groups and create something. So, for example, in qualitative research, I get them to decide to do an interview um, on a topic of their choice. Mm -hmm. They an in-depth interview. They're in small groups of, of six to eight. They post their initial ideas to their group and they get feedback. They then go and practice. You know, they then sorry, they then develop some questions they might ask and again get feedback. And then they practice the interview in a virtual meeting room with mm -hmm. two others in their group and they get feedback. And then they go on to do the interview, analyze the data from that one interview and post an early kind of analysis to their group. And again, the same group and they get feedback. So I can't be there for all 50 plus students and give each of them individual feedback. So I actually have to create this learning community. I, I obviously keep a watching brief on all the groups, make sure they're on the right track, but I let them actually you know, support each other in that kind of journey. They're, they're master's students. They've got a lot of experience in the world. They bring a lot of, you know, diverse views. And it's been an amazing um, journey to watch how those communities of learners support each other. And the results are really evident in the quality of the final assignment, which is to write up that interview. So I try and scaffold the learning so that everything they're doing is building towards that individual final assessment mm -hmm. so that everything they're doing online has a purpose. They're not just going on to go, what do you think of this video or have a chat about X. They can see yeah, okay. that everything is building to this kind of end result and it's a journey with other students. And the kind of feedback I've gotten has been around that. Like I've never felt more a part of a learning community. Wow, that's terrific. Um, and so you're in a te teaching and research role, is that right? Yes, a challenging uh, space to be in. Oh, yes. I, I've had a, a very small amount of teaching experience and quite enjoy it. But anytime I talk to someone who's a lecturer, I get scared off because it just sounds like a, a nightmare, the, the workload um, that's expected of you, especially if you're coordinating, of course. Uh, and then um, obviously the expectations for research output aren't really that much diminished either. So uh, I don't know how you do it. I take my hat off to you. <laughs> what, well, look, what's that been like for you? Yeah, look, I think it is a real challenge trying to balance them. I think one of the things to try to do, which I've been slowly working towards over my career in academia, is to have everything aligned. So what mm. you're teaching is also what you're researching. 
and the students that you supervise your higher degree PhDs or masters by research are also researching in the same area. So you don't have to try to get across content that's different for your teaching mm -hmm. and supervision to yeah, that'd help. you need for mm -hmm. your research. And I'm slowly getting there where there's very few students now that I'm teaching or supervising who aren't doing something related to my research agenda. But it, it's always challenging and you're always going, well, you know, how do I, you know, divide up my time? And, and the headspace you require to go online and run a webinar and, and engage with your students. So I, I always make sure every week I'm online when I'm teaching to do troubleshooting and Q&A and offer further support. And then the next day I've got, or, the, or that afternoon, I've got to start thinking conceptually about something for a paper I'm writing or a grant. And it's, you know, that's that real mind shift. I think you've just got to be, like I, I actually schedule everything in my diary from like mm -hmm. writing a paper from two to four or drafting mm -hmm. this. If I don't, those research tasks, those research things fall off the back of the truck mm. and end up just doing lots of little things and not actually, you know, progressing big pieces of work. Mm. Yeah, it's one of those kind of um, uh, mysteries of academia that they never really teach you how to be a productive academic, but everyone kind of figures it out somehow. Um, by scheduling their time or having other tools and techniques and strategies, yeah. something I'm still trying to figure out myself. And it's funny, you know, people who don't know academia think we're like school teachers and we have all the holidays on. <laughs> and they go, oh, what are you doing in the holidays? <laughs> it's like school holidays. Uh, mm. Writing grants, writing papers, supervising students, mm. you know, redesigning my courses. You know, it's, um, it's certainly not, you know, like, I mean, school teachers work extremely hard and they've got much yes. longer days, yep. but it's not, it's a very different um, job to, to teaching in a school. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was wondering if we could wrap up by maybe um, if you could tell us a little bit about uh, what you think are some possible future directions in, in your field. What are some of the issues that either you're interested in or that you can see that, that are coming up? Um, you know, what are some of the biggest issues in, in the area you're looking at? Yeah, so look, this gives me a chance to talk about another area that I'm really, really passionate about. And while, before I do that, I'd like to just also acknowledge I'm on Bettigal land um, of the Eora Nation and to acknowledge Aboriginal elders, past, present and emerging, and any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people who might listen to the podcast. Um, through my research, I've obviously engaged with young people who identify as Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander. I've also worked with organisations that are community controlled and mm -hmm. that are advocates and service providers for those, those communities. We mm -hmm. really need to get our act together around building workforce. So in the alcohol and other drug space, in health services more generally, we don't have enough Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people employed. They're underrepresented in all of the health professions, including allied health, Hamish. Mm -hmm. um, and there are major challenges about them both getting into the workforce, but staying in the workforce. So mm -hmm. I've been involved in a three-year project called the Career Pathways Project, mm -hmm. which was funded by the Lowitcher Institute and was mm -hmm. a partnership with a number of other um, groups, including the Aboriginal Medical Service in the Northern Territory and Billamoogee in Western New South Wales. And we found a range of things that made people who had gone into particularly mainstream, but really across the board, health services, not stay in that job. Um, you know, cultural safety, not having other Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people working mm -hmm. alongside you. Um, cultural and family obligations, which drew people away from their work you know, their work wasn't the traditional nine to five. 
Mm-hmm. They might have been working on the weekend by doing stuff. So they, they really didn't fit the mould of what a health service thought that kind of worker should be doing. And we learnt a lot about what could actually support Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islanders to stay working in health. So mm-hmm. we need to actually do something about that. Take action. Mm. Yeah, and also in research, we need more Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people being supported to be researchers, to be part mm-hmm. of this unfortunately very colonial academic world. We need mm-hmm. to decolonise academia to give people um, from Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities those opportunities because, you know, we've seen obviously Black Lives Matter, but, you know, we know that that access to healthcare is strongly related to going and seeing an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander health personnel or mm-hmm. seeing someone who is Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander in a health service. Yep. So if we want to improve equity and close the gap in health, we've actually got to really invest in building that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health workforce. So that's an area I remain really focused on. And in alcohol and other drugs, um, areas of treatment, we need to build the workforce there in a really big way um, and make sure that they, they're there to provide the intelligence to us as non-Aboriginal um, people around holistic care. They're, they're experts in how to look at the whole person, not just the disease or the yeah, okay. factor. So mm-hmm. we've got a lot to learn from, from really building that workforce and working alongside them in health. Well, that's great. Well, look, I might um, uh, ask you after, after we, um, we finish up for some links that we can potentially share with any listeners who are interested in finding out more. That'd be great, Hamish. Right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Sally. I really enjoyed talking to you. Yeah, thank you. It's been a lovely journey for me as well. You've been listening to the Science at the Local podcast, available on iTunes, soundcloud.com slash science at the local, and all good podcast providers. Science at the Local is not just a podcast, it's also a series of bi-monthly talks by expert and engaging scientists delivered in a cosy setting to the good folk of the Blue Mountains. Uh, to find out more, go to facebook.com slash science at the local. Science at the Local is run by me, Hamish Clark, and Kevin Joseph. We're supported by the Inspiring Australia program of the Commonwealth Government and those good folk in the mountains I mentioned earlier. Science is real.